Welcome to the Pure Football Podcast. I'm Chris Sampson, the host of the Pure Championship Podcast and from Sports Marketing Scotland as well. And I'm with La Liga expert Andrew Miller, who you'll know from the Pure Football European Podcast. Hello, Andrew. How are you? I'm not too bad, Chris. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad as well. This is actually our debut uh, podcast together tonight. Uh, and we've got a really good one lined up that everybody uh, listening is hopefully going to enjoy as well. For anyone that, that knows me well, they'll know I'm a big fan of uh, the way that Red Bull and their football clubs do things. Uh, I studied sports marketing at uni and ever since I've been fascinated with their approach uh, to, to football and, and even just business, really. Um, I've written about it a couple of times in the past and, and uh, on Football Manager 2017, I even managed Leipzig and Salzburg at the same time. Um, we wanted to dig a bit deeper into how they operate. Uh, and to do that, we've got Karan Tejwani on uh, joining us tonight. Hello, Karan. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Brilliant. Um, we're, we'll come on to, to a few kind of specifics in a second, but first we wanted to get a bit of an introduction to you um, and tell us a bit about your background in football writing as well. Right. So um, I've been writing for uh, almost five years now. I started in January 2016. Uh, I've been featuring, I mainly work with long form pieces. Uh, I've been featuring on websites like these football times, the guardian and, um, breaking the lines recently. So, uh, that's sort of my thing. I mainly focus on European football, but to watch football, I mean, I mainly prefer the Bundesliga and the premier league. Perfect. And, and yeah, well, I mean, as I've said tonight, we're, we are focusing on Red Bull and that is because you've got a book coming out in November called Wings of Change, looking at the mark Red Bull have made on football. Um, first question, then, I think, is when did you decide that you wanted to focus on the company and the clubs and, and write the book? Well, just like you, they've been a very fascinating uh, group in football, you know, as people dislike their presence in football and yet they're doing so well. Uh, you know, Leipzig are a very good example of that. They were only formed in 2009 and then in 2016 they were in the Bundesliga and now they're Champions League quarterfinalists. So, um, you know, their rise has been very uh, interesting to me and obviously the football they play has been uh, very appealing. Uh, so it was a combination of many factors, but um, I would say the first uh, moment the the idea of writing a book came to me was when um, RB Leipzig played against Mainz in this, in this season earlier uh, in November. And they beat them 8-0, which was very interesting because obviously 8-0 is a massive score. It doesn't happen every week. And secondly, because they played a very good style of football. It was quick. It was aggressive. It's like it's what you want to watch on a weekly basis. So that's what appealed to me. Now, I mean, Karan, so one of the questions that I wanted to kind of start off with, I guess, is so the group really has four sort of main uh, clubs, if you like. So they have Leipzig, they have Salzburg, they have the New York Red Bulls and they have the Bragantino team in Brazil. Is there a is there a defined hierarchy within that? Is is Leipzig, I guess, seen as the main club, um, mainly because they've had the, the sort of most success and they've kind of grown um, within the biggest league. Is there a defined hierarchy, or um, are the are the, the clubs within the group sort of evenly um, distributed? I guess there isn't a de- defined hierarchy per se, uh, but the general belief is that every that Red Bull prefers Leipzig because. Firstly, the Bundesliga is more popular than the Austrian Bundesliga and the MLS and or Major League Soccer and um, the Brazilian Serie A. So, you know, because the Bundesliga is far more popular, people uh, there is an assumption that Leipzig are given the b- biggest preference. Uh, and also because Leipzig, they attract the best players. They can attract, out of the four clubs, they can attract the best players and they, they can go furthest in the Champions League. So there isn't a hierarchy per se, but... The assumption always is that it's always Leipzig number one, Salzburg number two, and New York number three. 
the, the clubs have faced quite a lot of challenges, haven't they, over the years, uh, and especially so when initially taking over a club, and then furthermore trying to when they're trying to kind of market themselves and attract fans. What what have some of those challenges been for for some of the clubs? In Germany, obviously, the backlash is against them is because of the fifty plus one rule, but um, each time they invest in a club, they try to attract fans through their product obviously because the football is good as i said before and they have a very uh youth-based approach so um in leipzig for example if you take it when they were investing in the club they found that in that area in the like in the leipzig area in the eastern germany in the former east germany area uh there wasn't really a club that was nearby that people could relate to a top level club there were there were smaller clubs uh in that area in leipzig there are two small there are two uh clubs playing in lower divisions and you know in other areas as well but there wasn't a top-level club that was consistently playing in the Bundesliga or you know competing in, at the top level. So I think that's what attracted fans to it. Uh, but for the other clubs, uh, Salzburg, there was they had a club previously called Austria Salzburg. Uh, when Red Bull took over, they had a bit of backlash because um, they changed the colors, they changed the logo, they changed the identity of the club. So people felt it was you know they, they were losing their touch with the club itself. So. It took a bit of struggle here and there for about seven years before Ralph Rania came in and changed it and made the club more likable. So when you take the old Austria Salzburg before the Red Bull takeover, uh, they were a passionate club. They had a small, they had a bit of history, not that much. They won, they won a few trophies and played in the UEFA Cup final in 1994. Uh, so a lot of the traditional fans just you know deflected away from the Red Bull club, but most of them stuck by. And it's the same for uh, New York as well. The Metro Stars weren't exactly that popular in MLS. They, they were one of the bigger clubs, but they hadn't won anything. So until after, and then Red Bull came over, and you know, because they were such a young club, uh, people didn't uh, stop supporting them. There wasn't that much of tradition with them. So it's that sort of thing. They just try to attract people by, uh, you know, their product, their their football, their style, their philosophies, and that's what sticks with them. I think in uh, in MLS as well. It's obviously a, a, the US sports market is a little bit more uh, accepting of franchise changes and things like that, aren't they? Yeah, they would be because it's such a young league. Uh, the league was only formed in 1996. They don't have history like the Bundesliga do or the Premier League or La Liga, so it's not really uh, that much of big controversy if ownership changes that often. You know, if you if you see how. Red Bull came and took over at Salzburg. People were very angry about that, and in Leipzig as well. But that wasn't the case in New York. People just accepted it, and you know they moved with it. Leipzig, in particular, and and you mentioned it there, obviously with the fifty plus one rule, they they've risen through the leagues. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but they were in the regional leagues as recently as 2012, 2013. Um, and we're recording this on uh, on Tuesday night, but on Thursday night they're about to face uh, Atletico Madrid with a chance at reaching the Champions League semi-finals. Are attitudes towards the club changing at all um, in Germany? Uh, I, I really doubt it. I think the older, the more traditional fans still feel Leipzig should not be in the Bundesliga. Uh, you know, people often say to me, especially this season when they were challenging for the title, people felt that they'd much rather see Bayern Munich win the next ten Bundesligas than see Leipzig win even one. So, you know, the more traditional fans, they're just against it. They don't want to clubs like Leipzig or Hoffenheim no, anywhere near them. They feel that the more traditional clubs like Kaiserslautern or uh, Arminia Bielefeld, who were promoted this year, should be in the top flight in place of them. So 
if you look at the older fans, they would say, no, Leipzig shouldn't be anywhere near this. But the, the, the young fans are perhaps more accepting. I would say that the majority of the country still doesn't want them, but it's not as controversial as it was many years ago. But if people had a choice, they would just avoid Leipzig. Yeah, and I guess just to, to move away from Leipzig momentarily, can you talk a little bit about what happened with the Red Bull Brazil and the Red Bull Ghana projects? Yeah. And just to sort of follow that up as well, why why do you think that Red Bull see Brazil as such a, a sort of popular market? You know, they've gone back into it again after the Red Bull Brazil project um, and taken over the Bragantino team. What is it you think about the sort of Brazilian um, scene, football scene, um, that's made them go back for a second bite of the apple? The thing about Brazil is that it's always uh, such a big talent mine. You Every year you get maybe two or three players who are certain to make big careers in Europe. You've seen Real Madrid over the last few years. They signed players like Rodrigo and Vinicius Jr. and Reina Jesus. And they're all teenagers still. And they moved for big 30, million, 30, 40 million fees. So I think the main thing they wa- Red Bull want from Brazil is players like that. They want players that they can move on to clubs uh, in the future. And the thing about Brazilian players is always uh, there's always a reputation attached to them that, that they're going to be good in their careers no matter what. Even if they have one or two bad years, they will come back in their mid-20s. Uh, I, I read a I was reading a paper, a newspaper a couple of months ago and I was writing the Brazil chapter that there's a famous saying in Brazil that uh, people prefer a crap Brazilian than a very good Mexican. And I think that rings true with uh, what Red Bull are trying to do. They want to find a couple of good players and move them on and they want to keep them within the network. Obviously, if you see a good Brazilian player in Avi Bragantino or Brazil, they will move them to Leipzig or Salzburg. But um, so, that's, so that's the thing. They want to find uh, the next breakout star in a way. I think talking of kind of young talent and, and breakout stars, I, I think there's there has been some argument arguments around potentially kind of exploitation of young talent and, and especially so with some of the African players uh, that have come into the system. What would you say to that? And and sometimes obviously there's there's kind of not much compensation to the club that they're coming for from or the or the country as well. Yeah, uh that's obviously a massive problem. Uh, but it's something Red Bull have have avoided and they've uh, gone about their business very ethically. Uh, that's something to praise. Obviously, we've seen in recent years youngsters coming over and just being left to you know struggle in whatever country they're in. But Red Bull avoid that. Uh, I spoke to uh, a coach in Zambia who was the former coach of Pats and Daka and Inoko Mepo, who now play for Salzburg. Uh, he told me that Red Bull uh, manage their players very well. They try to find the best talents and, you know, give them the best resources and the best support system they can uh, in order to make them feel at home if they're playing in Austria. And I think that's one thing they strive to do. They want to make players feel welcomed. Uh, obviously, it's not easy for players to go from uh, countries in, from anywhere in Africa to a country like Austria or Germany. So they try to do their best to uh, make them feel at home. And uh, it's because they have such big, have such experienced staff. They have, their coaches are well-renowned in the youth department. They're uh, they're pretty well-regarded. Uh, so they know what they're doing and they're very experienced about it and they go about their business very well. And I doubt it'll be a problem in the future. Talking of controversy as well, and, and I think there's, there was a bit of potential conflict of interest, wasn't there, that led Leipzig and Salzburg to become, uh, I'm going to say in inverted commas, independent from each other. Can, can you tell us about what happened there? Uh, yeah, so um, UEFA rules pre- uh, say that two clubs who have the same owners cannot play in the same 
competition. They cannot play in Europe at all if they have the same ownership. So uh, in 2017, when Leipzig finished second in the Bundesliga and they qualified for the Champions League, uh, it was made clear that uh, they would have to drop out of the Champions League if they can't prove that they have separate ownership from Salzburg. Uh, so what they did was they moved a bit of staff around. They changed the co- they moved a few coaches and a few uh, you know administration staff around, and uh, they made it clear to UEFA that Salzburg were mainly sponsored by Red Bull and they were the title sponsors for their name. But Leipzig was a club that Red Bull truly owned. So that's what they present to us. But in reality, we probably know that behind the scenes, uh, there's it's a lot more um, easier to figure out in a way. So they, they try to avoid that because of the conflict of interest issues. Because if, it were, if they weren't able to prove that uh, Red Bull weren't owning both Leipzig and Salzburg, it would mean that Leipzig would have to drop out due to the fact that Aust- uh, that Salzburg finished champions in Austria, and UEFA rules say that the, the lower club, Leipzig, who finished second that year, uh, would have to drop out of European competition altogether. So to avoid that, they switched the ownership around, switched the staff around, um, made a few changes, and made it clear to UEFA that uh, Leipzig was the club they truly owned. It's just funny, isn't it, when you think about it? Because you look at, uh, I mean, obviously Leipzig are a rass and ball sport, but you look at. Salzburg and you, they are called Red Bull Salzburg and then you you don't really think like you just immediately think that they are a Red Bull owned club but yeah obviously it's it's not that difficult to get around some UEFA uh, guidelines sometimes is it yeah it's not it's not I mean it's something that can, there's lots of loopholes in almost every law UEFA have so you know it's easy to break that and avoid that and yeah Red Bull have probably won that battle how does the recruitment structure work within the group? You know, of course, they have four big teams and four pretty big footballing markets. How how does that sort of recruitment dynamic work within the group when they have these four different teams that, you know, they, of course, have to satisfy and they have to staff and they have to bring in the young players and the talent for? The belief is that um, they're both uh, individual in their recruitment styles. Uh, they have a common philosophy that they want players who can play a high-intensity, high-pressing, aggressive game. Uh, but the younger players, the the, the less uh, ready players, they move to Austria first. Uh, that's that's been the case most of the time. Uh, the more established players go to, go to Leipzig. Uh, the younger players go to Austria because uh, Red Bull have two clubs there, which is the senior club Red Bull Salzburg and the the feeder club FC Liefering. Uh, so obviously it gives them more time to develop and leave and play in the second division of Austrian football, which is fairly competitive. So uh, it gives them a chance to, you know, brush up their skills, uh, adapt to the climate, adapt to the environment. Uh, as you said earlier, the players from Africa who come in, they always go to leafering first because it gives them a feel of what European football is like. So it's a very smart and refined system uh that sees players progress through clubs uh the ideal scenario for red bull is that a player comes from Le- liefering goes to salzburg and then goes to Le- leipzig um so it's worked out a few times before and it will continue to work out in the future um but but yeah that's the case uh you always you mostly see that the younger players who come in from abroad will go to leipzig they'll go to salzburg first and that's been the case for players like Huangi chang who moved to leipzig this summer from salzburg he was a pretty good example of the, the recruitment strategy that Red Bull have. Uh, he came to Salzburg first in 2015, I think, and he played there for a couple of years. Won the won the the Bundesliga in Austria, 
won a few cups, did well, scored a few, scored a lot of goals, and played in the Champions League as well before moving to Leipzig as the replacement for Timo Werner. So that's like the ideal scenario Red Bull imagine for each of their players. Yeah, and and obviously you mentioned that sort of feeder process almost that the players come into Salzburg and then they would move on to the bigger club in Leipzig. Now they've obviously had a number of, of really phenomenal successes with that, and and people will be well aware of you know a, a lot of the bigger names like Sadio Mane, for example. Can you take us through some of the other examples, I guess, of of players that they've brought in, developed to the system, and who have either you know moved on to the Leipzig team now or have been sold on for a you know a massive profit? Oh, Naby Keita is like the perfect example, also. Uh, and he's perhaps even better. He's a better example than Huang, because he came in at a, when he was a teenager from uh, Metz, I think, or was money from Metz. But he was from one of the French clubs, and he joined at a very young age for a very low fee, and he stayed for about two years. And he did quite well in Austria. He won the title a couple of times, and uh, then he moved to Leipzig. In the he moved to Leipzig when they were in the Bundesliga for the first time, and he's. He was really good there, one of the best players in the league, and lots of people took attention to him. And he is the record transfer between Leipzig and Salzburg. I think it was 29 million euros. No player has moved for a bigger fee than that. And that's a testament to his quality and obviously what he brought to the team. And then from Leipzig, he moved to Liverpool for about 52 million euros, which was perfect for Red Bull. I think that if you ask, if you had the chance to ask any uh, coach or coach associated with the Red Bull clubs, they would say that Naby Keita is the perfect example of what we want to see in a player. That a player comes in from abroad for a very cheap fee, who's uh, eager to learn, he's eager to succeed in his career. So it happened perfectly with Naby Keita and other players like Dio Pupacano, who will probably go, he'll probably leave Leipzig uh, either this summer or next summer for a good 40, maybe 50 million odd euros. Uh, players like Peter Golashi, who joined from Liverpool, he was having a stagnating career in England. He moved to Salzburg and then Leipzig, who's and he's probably the, one of the best goalkeepers in in Germany right now. So, a lot of good examples, but I would say the best example would be Navigator. I'm you've just given some a, a good number of examples there, but I'm always amazed that uh, I always feel there should be more players that that move through the system. Is there a rough number about how many? have to move through the club structure and had one specific example to ask you as well just as a follow-on in terms of why does uh, Erling Haaland move to Dortmund for example rather than Leipzig? Yeah um, there have been about 19 players if I recall correctly that's that's 19 players between Salzburg and Leipzig but I'm pretty sure it'd be around 30 if you could include all uh, all four primary Red Bull clubs um but Erling, on top of Erling Haaland, it's similar to uh, what, what we spoke about earlier when the UEFA conflict of interest thing happened. So when that conflict of interest uh, issue happened, uh, one of the main problems facing Red Bull was that there were too many players and too many coaches moving between them. And they wanted to make it clear to UEFA that they weren't intricately linked. So ever since 2017, Red Bull have come out, and uh, both clubs, Leipzig and Salzburg, have come out and said that Players do not have to move to another Red Bull club. They have the freedom to choose uh, whatever they want. And Erling Haaland is uh, an example of that. Uh, in November 2019, when he was playing for Salzburg, there was a strong belief that he would move to Leipzig. He had three choices back then. It was Dortmund, Leipzig and Manchester United. And, you know, Leipzig didn't interfere. Red Bull didn't interfere. And that's sort of their primary example now that they say, like Erling Haaland, we give everyone freedom to choose what they want. And Haaland obviously moved to Dortmund and get big success there. But 
yeah, that's that's it's a bit of a conflict of interest thing, similar to the, similar to the to the 2017 uh, issue that they had. Yeah, and, and just kind of staying on that topic of the the Salzburg to Leipzig transfers, I'm interested to understand the dynamic of this sort of transfer highway from a coaching perspective. You know, there's obviously a lot of players have moved through. How involved is Julian Nagelsmann in these decisions on bringing a player from Salzburg to Leipzig? And you know, is there an expectation or almost a pressure even on him that? they have to get a certain amount of game time because they've made that move over and, and obviously the group wants them to continue progressing and developing. Uh, it's, never been, it's never been made clear like that there is pressure on any coach. Uh, I think it it's similar to what we said earlier about players having freedom. I, don't, I think that coaches have freedom as well. They don't have to pick a Salzburg player through the system anymore and they don't have to give them a specific amount of game time. I think if uh, Nagelsmann felt that he that Huang was a good example for Werner, then they will go for him. Obviously, the negotiation might be very easy because uh, the two clubs are friends with each other, and you know the people within them are friends with each other, and they're very comfortable with each other. But I don't think there's any sort of pressure facing the coaches or any of the staff to give players game time or even buy them. So it's purely down to uh, who coaches think will fit the team best. Yeah. Okay. And you know, obviously. Marco Rosa was was expected to move um, from Salzburg to, to Leipzig, and that never quite materialised. And of course, they brought in uh, Nagelsmann. Was there a particular reason that they, you know, moved away from bringing the coach over from from the Austrian Bundesliga into the Bundesliga? And sort of what was the main thinking behind bringing in Nagelsmann over Marco Rose? I don't think that was particularly the case because uh, in two thousand and eighteen, when Ralf Hasenhutl was still the coach of Leipzig. Uh, they struck an agreement with Hoffenheim, with uh, Nagelsmann to bring him over in 2019. So at that point, between 2018 and 2019, Marco Rosa was probably still developing. Um, he'd only been in senior management for one year. And, you know, they probably felt that they should give him a little bit more time to develop in the Austrian Bundesliga. Um, but uh, with, with Nagelsmann, he was already a more established coach. He was already in the Bundesliga for three, four years, I think, three years at the time. And um, they felt that they saw more potential in him, probably, because uh, he, is already, he already had some Bundesliga and Champions League experience, which Marco Rose didn't have. So it was probably safer to feel that Julian Nagelsmann would maximise the potential of the team uh, much more than uh, Marco Rose. And obviously, as one of the most uh, sought-after coaches in Europe at the time, Having the opportunity to bring in Julian Nagelsmann isn't the worst thing in the world, so they probably consider that idea as well, that they probably won't get him so easily in the future. Now, one member of staff that I do want to mention that has um, worked his way through that hierarchy um, is Jesse Marsh, of course, going from uh, the New York Red Bull team to Leipzig as an assistant and then um, you know, eventually taking over at Salzburg. What kind of training does, does Red Bull give their sort of leaders and their coaches? Do they have a, a sort of defined, centralised training and development for, for, the, for the sort of leaders of each team? Uh, yeah, the, the 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 philosophy is the same across all Red Bull clubs for players and coaches. So they want all the coaches and the players as well to obviously follow the same method of uh, high intensity football, high aggress- high pressing, and very aggressive football. So once that happens, it becomes very easier. It becomes easier for players and coaches to switch between the clubs, and that's the reason why so many players are so suited to Leipzig's foot to so, to each club's football. Um, Jesse Marsh was a very unique case. Not many coaches uh, 
have the path that he had, especially for American coaches. There haven't been there haven't been too many American coaches in Europe. So he was at New York and then he did very well there and they obviously liked his his style of football. He's probably the best ever coach in uh, the Red Bulls history, which is a very short history. But um he did very well there and then he moved to Leipzig to work under Ralf Ranick, who set out this philosophy. Ralf Ranick is the reason that they play the football they play, they, he's the reason that they had the players they have. You know, he sets out the philosophy, he sets out He's basically the godfather of the Red Bull clubs. Um, so he learned for a year under Ralph Ranić, and he probably felt that it was worth giving him a senior role uh, in in Salzburg because obviously Marco Rose was going to leave and the timing was perfect. And it wouldn't be surprising if at some point in the next one or two years, if Nagelsmann leaves, Jesse Marsh gets the senior job at Leipzig because he knows every he knows the system so well. He knows quite a few players and he understands the philosophy so well. So it's because of that philosophy of aggressive pressing, uh, playing high at the pitch, playing quickly, that coaches and players adapt so easily when they move to clubs. Karan, tell us about um, Oliver Burke. Um, obviously, as, as Scottish football fans and, and fans of the, the national team, to see him join Leipzig for, I think it was around £13 million um, a good couple of years ago now, was, was really exciting for us. But it didn't really work out for him, did it? Yeah, it didn't. Um... I can't really give you specifics because I didn't follow his time very much, but I read somewhere that he wasn't really in the best um, frame of mind almost, that people believed he wasn't uh, very hungry to succeed at that level. Uh, I, I do feel he's a decent player. He's been playing in Spain for this whole the whole year, the whole season, and he's done okay there. But people felt as though he wasn't really in the right frame of mind to uh, succeed and to maximize the potential as much as he could. I can't really say much. Sorry for that, but that, that's what I've read in the past. Yeah, no, fair enough. And, and you know, I think we we discuss the successes that come through the Red Bull Group quite a lot. But you know, for every Naby Keita or Timo Werner, there will obviously be a, an Oliver Burke in there. But any other players that you you know sort of come to mind when you think that you know they, they bring in these young players that look like they could take a step towards real stardom, but you know for whatever reason it just don't quite pan out is there any other players that come to mind that really looked like they had the potential to make it and didn't uh it's going to take a while to think about isn't it (laughs) um there are a few in the team right now uh but it's hard to say because they're so young and they eventually probably will become something good players like Amadou Haidara uh even Ibrahim Akhenate has been struggling with injury for the past one year and he's people believe that he's better than Dyer Upamecano uh who's been getting all the attention but he's been injured for the past... He's missed almost the whole season in 2020. Um, so it, I can't think of anyone in the past that really comes to mind. There must be a few, but there wasn't really that much expected of them. But this this, this crop is very interesting to see, especially with Konate. Uh, there's a belief that he can end up playing France consistently. He just has to, he just has to keep his fitness uh, up to scratch. But I think it's a very interesting case to keep an eye on with Konate. Yeah, obviously you mentioned Ralph Ranić as well, so just moving on from that. They have this centralised style, they have this philosophy that, that stems from obviously within the group. He's obviously a huge, crucial part of that. Do you think there's going to be a, a big sort of gap left when he moves on potentially, or, or is it going to have a big sort of negative impact on the project as a whole if he were to move on or leave or go elsewhere? I don't think it'll be, it'll be that much of an impact because... Uh, for the past year, year and a half, he's been mostly away. He's been 
seeing the uh, out the international clubs in New York and Brazil. He's mainly focused on that part of the thing. Uh, but he he set such a good uh, framework for Red Bull to work within that each coach and each player knows their role. And they obviously have very talented people at the helm. Julian Nagelsmann is still young. He has a good maybe 20 years in management and he certainly will do well at Leipzig. Jesse Marsh is also very young and if once he leaves Salzburg, it's almost certain that he will come to Germany, whether that's in Leipzig or anywhere else. So they have good people working in the group and they have good coaches and the academy system is so well refined that there will always be two or three players each year or each two years that will come and play in the first team for Salzburg. And he set a very good um, framework for them to come and take over with. So I don't think it'll be that much of a problem. But yeah, it seems very unlikely that it's going to be problematic for them. Karan, what what do you think Leipzig then, um, moving back onto them, need to do to reach that next level and and go on to to win the Bundesliga? Uh, The problem with German football is that Bayern is so dominant. Bayern are like the pinnacle of German football. Everybody, every German football, when they're young, they want to play for Bayern. It's you don't you don't reject a call from Bayern Munich when it comes around. So uh, they're obviously the biggest challenge. I feel that if anyone can beat Bayern, it's going to be Leipzig. But the main problem with Leipzig is that they keep selling their best players, as as it was with Timo Werner. And when you sell your best players, you sometimes need maybe two years to replace them. Maybe you might not be able to replace them for a very long period of time. So it's it's that sort of thing that every club is interested in these in the, in the Leipzig players because they're that good and they're that um, uh, tactically profound. They know how to do things uniquely. So if they can avoid for a year or two, selling their best players, if they can build a good core group, I feel that Julian Nagelsmann and RB Leipzig will be the ones who break the Bayern dominance. But it seems very unlikely at this point. And going back on to, to players then, everybody loves uh, talking about wonder kids. Who Who's the next big thing, or, or even a couple of names, currently on the books of any of the Red Bull clubs that you want to pick out? Uh, Salzburg, uh, Karim Ademi is one that's very uh, highly touted. Uh, people think that he's going to be the next one to, you know, go leave leave Salzburg for a very big fee. Uh, for Salzburg, there's another player called Noah Okofor. Uh I don't know much about him, but people, you know, once again, he's a very highly rated player. They're both teenagers. They're both still young, and they will be at Salzburg for maybe another two or three years before they eventually make the big move. But those two are players that uh, people think will eventually become big stars in the future. Uh, when it comes to Leipzig, Tyler Adams is, you know, touted as one of the big hopes of American soccer, along with Christian Pulisic. Uh, people think that he's going to become a very good player. I feel he's a very good player. I think he's he's maybe next season, hopefully, he gets more chances to prove himself. Uh, he's been under the radar. He's been behind the scenes with uh, Conrad Leimer and Marcel Sabitzer ahead of him in the pecking order. But I feel that if he's given more chances, he can do very well. I feel he's a very good player. So those three, for me, stand out the most. They're all very young and maybe two, three years from now, hopefully they have good careers. I feel like you could pick out so many players there. Like I, I was actually um, in Salzburg for the Europa League game against Frankfurt. Um, and it was the first time I'd seen them live and first time I'd seen them in a wee while actually just watching uh, even in person or on the TV. And Mo Kamara really stood out for me in midfield. I thought he, he looked like on that night anyway, like he could be the next Kante almost. He seemed to be everywhere. No, Kamari, yeah. um, he isn't as big as, you know, the other names on the team, but 
it's hard to say really at this point because obviously this, they're all quite young and you know you can't really predict how their careers will go but yeah anything could happen in this game you know uh, sort of looking to the future at the moment then for the Red Bull group they have the four primary clubs at the moment do you envision them sort of continuing to try and grow this globalization um, and what sort of other markets could you see them targeting based on the strategy of you know you mentioned the Bragantino they they're aiming to get sort of swoop up that young Brazilian talent, the Salzburg and Leipzig connection is is more for sort of player movement and development. Is there any particular markets or particular leagues at the moment that stand out to you that would potentially have a, a nice fit for, for the next Red Bull team? At this point, it's, it's probably very unlikely that they invest in another club because they have two clubs in Europe, one club in North America and one club in South America. So they're essentially covering the best parts in Europe and they have good connections with academies in Africa so they can snap up the best players from uh, different African countries uh, when they're very young and they can develop them in their way. So it seems very unlikely that they, they will invest in another club, uh, especially in Europe with the whole issue they had with uh, conflict of interest with UEFA in 2017. So Europe is pretty much off the charts. Maybe they'll have another club in a developmental capacity, but no top-level club uh, per se. Uh, the US... Again, with the Red Bulls, it's it's incredibly unlikely. And the same with Brazil. Uh, in the future, I can see a few more developmental teams or academy teams coming up in uh, in Africa or Asia. But that's about it. I can't really see them uh, making a senior team in another in another continent or another, another region. Yeah, I guess maybe we won't see Red Bull Scotland um, at any point in the future. <laughs> that's good for you. Then I don't think we need more Red Bull clubs. I think we have enough. <laughs> Karan, um, thank you very much for coming on the podcast that, that's all the questions we've got um, really fascinating stuff and uh, good luck with the book I've, I've already got my copy pre-ordered um, when I spotted it a couple of weeks ago that it was that it was coming soon um, can you just remind everybody uh, where they could grab it and, and when it's coming out uh, yeah, the book is out in November on November 9th, 2020 um, it's available to pre-order from Amazon, Waterstones or Book Depository uh, if you're living outside of the UK or the EU. No problem. Thank you again and, and good luck with the book. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me.